three higher ed authors, 100 plus college and university presidents, dozens of actionable insights for academic leaders. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education is now available on Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio back with you on another episode as we continue to roll. Actually, by the time you hear this episode, we will have surpassed 300,000 plays of the Edup Experience over the last three and a half years. It is uh, such an honor to serve the community in this way by bringing you what we think are the most fun and insightful conversations taking place across the entirety of higher education. Maybe a little bit selfish, but I really believe that to be true uh, because we, have, we, we can have fun while we have these serious conversations about serving students. It's very hard work. If you work in higher ed, you know this ain't easy. This ain't easy serving students. It's really, really hard. But the reward is unlike anything that you could ever experience. Um, and, and when you have somebody cross that stage and cry in front of you as you hand them a diploma, there is no feeling like it. We tried to take the first 125 presidents we interviewed. We didn't try it, we actually did. Take the first 125 presidents we interviewed on this podcast and we put them into a book called Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, which is available for purchase. Thank you to those of you that continue to support the work we do here at EdUp. What we'll do with the next 125 presidents, um, I don't know, we already actually interviewed another 125, so I'm not sure what we're gonna do. But we like to bring back some of the originals, some of the, the presidents that were in the book informing it from the first uh from the first interviews that we had and we've got one of those gents back with us but before i get to him before i get to him i'm bringing back we're bringing back a former interview we interviewed him he was not a president when we interviewed him and like one week later he became a president there's something like that it was really fast guys like a rocket ship um but he's back co-hosting with me and it's what really ironic because i missed that episode where he came on so i've been dying to get him on a microphone with me here he is ladies and gentlemen he is dr mordecai ian brownlee and he is president of the community college of aurora mordecai what's going on how you doing, man? Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, you know, I spent 17 years in Denver, so I know CC Aurora very, very well. And to have you over there serving uh, a community that I spent almost 20 years in is such a, a great honor because, you know, those there's a lot of great students in Colorado to serve. And well, let me tell you, it takes uh, it's great pride to be able to serve as the sixth president here. We are the most diverse college in the state of Colorado. Uh, over 60 percent of our students being uh, students of color and over 50 percent being first generation and we're now serving almost uh, 9,000 strong. So uh, it's, it's an amazing institution. Honored to be here and honored to be here with you, Joe. Well, thank you, sir. Um, honored to have you here. And uh, I think we're going to have, I know we're going to have a pretty amazing conversation with the, the lineup we've put together today. And our guest, now a two-time guest coming back after he was on episode 139, we're now on 640 or 650. He was one of the original presidents we interviewed on this podcast. I don't remember exactly what number, but here he is again. He is Dr. Reynolds Verrett. He is the president at Xavier University of Louisiana. Reynolds, how are you? Well, I'm doing very well, doing very well. We finally came through commencement where our summer board meeting is over. So we're doing our planning for the next part. And also we're, it's gonna be a busy year but a busy year for good reasons as we go forward. So we're really stepping to our new year already. I always love when when we interview leaders and they say it's gonna be a busy year, as if the previous year or the next year won't be busy. It's like every year is just equally busy in different ways, isn't it? It's a- 
it, there will be new things. Exactly. There will be so, new things for us. Yeah. It's always new things coming at you in different ways. You know, you were the 45th president we ever interviewed on this podcast, uh, Reynolds. And one of the challenges I think for presidents today, and this was about two and a half years ago that we interviewed you and here you are still thriving in your position. You know, one of the, the common narratives out there is the presidential tenure is on the decrease on the steep decline, as it were. Presidents are not making it very long, whether it's burnout, pressures, external, internal. What's the secret? What's the secret been to your longevity in the role so far? I think the secret has been uh, a love of the community and the work that, 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 that I've been doing, that we've been doing. I think Excellent. the satisfaction that keeps us going for a long time, that satisfaction reinvigorates us as we go. That's one aspect. Also having a great board of trustees that, 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 is, that is supporting and also understands the work that we are doing. And I'm saying we, the team that manages the university through the deans. I think that investment of the board of trustees understanding the work we do and, and giving us that support is important as well. Do you think that you have to change your style year to year to keep fresh? Do you have your, do you, is it situational? Because you, we were just talking, right? I think different things hit you. Yeah. If you have the same leadership, you could have the same style perhaps, but but if you don't change in your mind with the changing landscape, then you don't stay fresh. How do you stay fresh um, to, to make the, this longevity in, stay consistent? I think we are working at different initiatives and projects. The style cannot change because in some ways we have to be genuine. Uh, and I have to be genuine. I have to be who I am. And that commitment has to be remain the same. But at the same time, the problems that we are uh, addressing, the initiatives that we are put, bringing in place are different. And so we are we approach them differently. Uh, and also we bring uh, new people around the table with us. We have new partners. At the same time, we have to be who we are. Mm, authenticity. I like your style, dude. Uh, Morica, I'm going to pass it over to you. Yeah, so President Barrett, just kind of walk us through now. I mean, as we were talking about a lot of changes as a fellow president, I know I spent a lot of my time thinking about the demographic realities that are happening in our area of service. Now, Xavier, nationally known, world respected, the work that you all have been doing for a number of years in terms of the creation even of, of health professionals and, um, and, and and all the work that you all have been doing, what is what is at the forefront of your mind as you think about demographics, you think about environmental scan and just the changes that are happening and, and what lies ahead in terms of responsibilities for Xavier University? Well, I think one, uh, from a demographic point of view, it's we have been able to uh, hold up our enrollment and uh, our enrollment has actually, even during the pandemic, uh, uh, increased. Amazing. So, so, so we've been able to do that. So, but the large challenge is that basically we know that the Amer- that the nation is changing in significant ways, even as as we becoming majority minority in significant ways. So that change is, is occurring in many ways. It reminds me of a statement by a colleague who reminded us that very often, you know, the older generation is is worrying about issues that have actually passed, but that the younger generation is facing new issues. The proverb, the caravan, keep, the caravan has moved on but the dogs keep barking. So there are issues that the younger generation, our students are facing that are quite different. Uh, we are also at the same time, uh, looking at Xavier, not necessarily through a legacy of our successes in the past. That is our mission, the mission remains true too. So mission has not changed, but Preparing Xavier for the future is also always our focus of where we will be need, where, where is our mission calling us to serve today and tomorrow? 
to use a very uh, Christian and Jesuit notion of reading the signs of the times. What are we called to do today? Not necessarily what we were called to do 10 or 20 years ago uh, in order to be of service to our students is, is always that reflection. It's in, our, it's in our planning work. It's in what we are, are, are asking ourselves to do and prepare for the next on decades, the next 100 years, hopefully. Just out of curiosity, what keeps you up at night? Is there is, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Yikes. Uh, affordability for us. I, I know that, 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 that the majority of my students are Pell eligible and Pell is not kept up. So I know that uh, uh, being able to actually get to a place where no student should be denied education at Xavier because she or she can't afford it. Because I know that's a challenge for more than half of my students at any given time. Uh, that's the major challenge. That's a major challenge. Of course, we have other challenges that keep us at night that uh, uh, we have weather here, we have other things, but the larger piece of exactly how do I keep the doors open and make it accessible, affordable to any palette that needs a Xavier education is, is, is a challenge that we have to face for the next decades and go into the future. Thank you, Mr. President. Joe. Yeah, so, you know, you talked about, you guys both kind of alluded to the demographic shifts that we, um, the country's experiencing, min minority majority, you know, we have a, a multicultural majority um, coming, you know, we've talked, we actually, you know, who was really uh, good at speaking about this was the director of education from Google, John Farrar, who I've had co-host with me a bunch of times. And he was saying just the investment and how we're, how we're uh, uh, marketing to students who are, want different things. Does it take structural changes to serve this demographic change? Do, do you look at the structure, the way the university is structured and say, hey, these, these, the multicultural majority, the students of first gen or lower economic backgrounds or whomever need different things. How do we update our structure to be solvent financially? Well, I think it's not structural, but programmatic in some ways. One of the pieces that, uh, one of the inherent strengths of Xavier has been that we assume that uh, whatever the students did not find or have in their pre-collegiate education, it's our job to take care of that. So that's why but we meet them very early. We uh, help them identify strengths and weaknesses and, and the faculty work with them. That's important. One of our analyses has been that we also realized in our analysis, in, in, you know, as we work through our data for the last three or four years, is that if we look, slice our data differently, we could see that our students were first generation students, whether they were at the upper levels of our academic performance or at the lower level that our first generation students compared to our in academic preparation, I mean, pre-collegiate preparation, SATs, ACTs, GPAs, et cetera. And if we slice that data differently, we see that first generation students, whether they are at the upper highest level or at the lowest level, suffer a disadvantage comparison to students who are, who are not first generation. In other words, I do not have a mother, father, uncle, aunt, who can actually give me the advice about what I need to college. So it has required us to actually put in place to us a special initiative called our care program to actually meet the needs of first generation students because that will that will result in a, in a persistence uh, gain, persistence in graduation gain for first generation students because we noticed that in our data because when we looked at our data in different ways without looking at the first generation angle, right? It was not apparent. But you notice that even our strongest students, right, who are first generation are meeting, are, 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 are meeting other hurdles. Which is not so so that means we have we've put in places uh, the 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 intentional advising and mentoring that begins earlier to work with them throughout to provide resources that that they would need uh, to think about. For example, 
Um, there are things that uh, students whose parents have gone to college know that other first generation would not even know. For example, one of the little secrets that many people don't know is that if you are aspiring to a PhD in, uh, in, in the sciences, that nobody pays for a PhD in the sciences in this country, it's actually you're supported somehow. But if I, no one tells you that, then you might post that off your list. Because hmm. no, I never heard that. There's no one who gave me that advice because who would know in my neighborhood? Huh? And so yeah. there, there are other wisdoms that first generation students need that we're making sure that they, that they receive because they may not have that knowledge at home. Um, that's one piece. The other pieces that, that, that we're looking at is the diversity of programs that, that, that students, that, that we reflect that our existing programmatic structure, there are programs that we have put in place because these are the ones that are relevant to our students today versus the, different, versus the past. Also looking at for them, the interdisciplinary uh, breath that our students have, that even as a student, our students are not uh, necessarily looking at our, pro, at our majors in terms of uh, direct line to a career. They are seeing that that major, whether it's in chemistry or in history, is actually an opening to many careers so that we have our science students who are becoming lawyers and managers or might go into business. And our students in the humanities and social science go to medical school and others because that breath is, that breath is it opens up new areas so that they can think of their careers much more differently. So our, our career advising is much more not defining a tunnel for your students, but basically opening to new, new avenues. Uh, because they have they have the habits of mind that they would have that is helpful to them. Uh, one of the pieces that actually is, is, is that we're trying we're making sure that we sustain is that our uh, contribution to the social mobility of our students. Because Xavier is one of those schools that is was one of the top ten in David Leonard's America's Great Colleges in Excellent. social mobility. But to be sure that we are able to make that available to all students, is, 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 and to say that basically that that opening of choices is important uh, it, um, to them is, is important, even though we're not educated for a job because they will define their jobs. <laughs> we're educating them to give to, so that they can take and be, and take not just the options as workers but also as leaders, so that they have the skills to be contributing to the remaking of America in this new America that you and I will both be. Uh, looking at from our rocking chairs. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, let me ask you a, a question. You're talking about, you know, as we break down these in, these these infrastructure, these barriers uh, towards success and thinking about what we're doing to meet the needs. And I'm saying we because as a fellow educator, mm -hmm. so I know that we're doing this work together, but we're, we're creating uh, new opportunities, focusing on equitable student success. I was reading with great excitement about this centennial campaign that you all have just recently, fairly recently kicked off at the university, $500 million campaign goal. And I, as I was reading, all of this work is in the advancement of creating new resources, creating new bridges, creating new opportunities. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think first of all, I, 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 when, when we looked at that $500 billion goal, which was not our initial goal, because it's a scary goal. We've not done it before. As we've long, many things we've not done before. Uh, it was based upon some deep analysis from our strategic work, where we're not looking at strategic planning for the next five years, but asking ourselves the questions, what do we need to, what do we need in, at Xavier to be sustainable, to be relevant, and to be competent for the next decades and uh, for the next 50, 100 years, because we will be 100 years old. Ah. Uh, so how do we remain competent for the next decades and be true to our mission? 
So one of the, and one of our three challenges right now is we understand, for example, that we truly need to, to address the affordability. We need to get to a place where we can tell that a student uh, whose families are below a certain income, let's say hundred million, hundred thousand dollars a year in today's dollars, should be graduating with uh, little loans or no loans. We're not there. But that's something that we need so that there, no students should say, I'm not going, I can't, Xavier's not possible for me. So that's the mission we were called by, we were called to 100 years ago by Catherine Drexel, our founding. Um, um, that's an important piece of part of what we also need to be able to actually uh, support our faculty and develop our faculty. And because the faculty, as the students will quite honestly tell you, they don't come for the president nor the dean, uh, they come for the faculty. <laughs> to be quite honest, as a former faculty, as a member of the faculty myself, former member of the faculty myself. Uh, that faculty, we know that because our success is a faculty that reproduces itself, even when people retire, leave us, and are replaced. The faculty reproduces itself that they, they have a certain quality attitude of mind that's in support of our students. This faculty that, uh, to quote one of one of our students, who was complaining about other things in campus, says, I'm here because the faculty has my back. That's, Epic. that's testimonial from our students. So to retain the faculty, to give the faculty not just only the teaching or to become the scholar and scholars and educators that they are. And that scholarship is important because we want to give them time to be, the reason they became chemists, the reason they became historians is because of a love of history. So they should be able to practice history and the arts and music. So that space and time to actually give them, not just compensation, people think of money as the only thing, but space and time, the studios, the laboratories to be who they are. Because in being who they are, one of the things that is in, uh, very essential to the Xavier education is that the fact that our students are in the laboratories doing research with our faculty. They are archives doing research with our historians. They, are, they, are, do, they do history, they do biology, they do art. They do that. And, and one of the words that I use is that when they leave us and go to graduate school to one of the great things that they want to do, they're already junior colleagues. Epic. So that experience, that quality of faculty that we have, we also know because of our success, uh, other institutions covet our faculty. And I use covet in the biblical sense. So we have to give our faculty the reasons to enjoy and, and to great joy in being able with our students. So that support is important. We also need endowed, endowed professorships to bring those chances on where, around whom we build our programs. For example, one of the programs that I'm that I'm, um, truly excited about recently uh, just approved by the Board of Trustees three weeks ago is our new graduate program in, bio, in ethics of science, society, and technology. Because as we think of ourselves as a, as a historically black institution, steep in the sciences and health, historically Catholic institution as the only Catholic uh, HBCU in the country, it is important as we go into the major questions of uh, how we implement technology, new, new approaches to health, that we, we be able to have people among my students, those bright young women and men at around the table who are asking what I call the art question. When we have new technologies, new, new, new approaches to health, uh, should I, when should I, how much should I, to whom should I? Those are at the interface of philosophy, theology, science that we have, that, that, that we're educating people in those fields as well. We also need to bring faculty who are champions around whom to build, to build, to build a faculty as well. So we need the endowed professorships, not only in this field, but in other fields as well. In, in, in the fact that we send more students to PhD programs in the sciences, we need those faculty in the sciences who are also themselves great scientists who are educating our students at, so that we learn at the feet of great masters. That's the apprentice model from the Middle Ages. It hasn't changed. Nailed it.
Understood. So, so our faculty is important. So we are part of our, a lot of that, that about 75, $80 million of our campaign is, is to develop, to develop and sustain the faculty. About $100 million is, is, is endowment for affordability of students. Of course, we have physical infrastructure. We need the laboratories, the clinical, the, the, the studios as well. And the other pieces are, are what, what, what we're doing, development programs that support our students. For example, study abroad. A young man or young woman from Louisiana, from Arkansas, or from uh, even places like New York can live a very parochial life as an American because we're not seeing that and be able to actually spend some time maybe learning with others around the world who do not look like them, who think differently than them, because that would make them richer, because the world that we're trying to serve is a much larger world than, than anywhere, anywhere we grew up. So we need to be able to, to be able to afford, endow, study abroad, and other programs that enrich the lives of our students, uh, because remember our students uh, who come from families who normally cannot afford to actually spend the semester in Ghana or in, uh, or, 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 or in Singapore. We need to be able to do that. So, you know, so that I want to say one more thing that the reason that we do this is the thing that we feel that we must do, not because we wish to do. And that's the, that's the capital campaign. It's about the future. You know that the world of higher education is experiencing evolutions and revolutions. You want to be part of the progress. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education with insights from more than 100 college and university presidents will show you how. Get your copy of Commencement, the Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education now on Amazon right away. We think you're going to love it. It's amazing. As you think about the future, you know, I was also uh, very excited to read about uh, this work that you're going to be doing with the uh, Xavier University starting its first HBCU med school. Wow. Uh, and, and, and I'm just really excited to hear about this. I mean, is Excellent. this campaign going to also... I would only imagine be a part of this joint vision. Uh, you know, I, folks I, tend to talk about the Moore houses and they tend to talk about Howard University, but now they're going to be talking about Xavier University having its own med school. Can you tell us a bit, a bit about that? Uh, the, the med school for us is uh, is is uh, an effort that comes from analysis of exactly what we need to do, given what we've done in the pre-medical space, educating more more students, who be, more African-Americans who become physicians than this school in the country. Oh, uh, yeah. We do that very well, uh, and but the question of the medical school has been, oh, the work that we've done in disparities, health disparities, and COVID-19 probably was an example of that. The epidemic, the pandemic would have taught, taught us something about disparities in health that, that we see in this country. One of the issues that we've done, disparities work, we've had a long uh, scholarly, but also education work on health disparities in our schools, pharmacy, in our, in our undergraduate programs as well. What we do know is that disparities are based on representations and important dimension of the, of the trust in the in, in healthcare system. Uh, that representation piece, we've also looked at our physicians. We've worked with many medical schools who have great work trying to, to increase the representation of African-Americans among medical students. What we do see is that over the last 40, 50 years that we've seen incremental work growth, but not the growth that brings us to where we need to be, especially as we become a new country. Yikes. 5% of African-American doctors right now are African-Americans uh, versus a population of 13 to 13 to 15%, okay? Are African. It depends on how we, we slice the race dynamics in this country. We're getting there incrementally. We'll not get there by the time your great, great, great grandchildren get there if we don't do something significant. 
We also know that there are certain historically black institutions that themselves should be standing medical schools. We have a history, and I'm going back a long time ago, 19, in the 1920s, the Flexner Report, which we find medical education. In the Flexner Report, one can read it. It prescribes the closing of seven out of nine medical schools for with black institutions. But remember, this was the world of birth of the nation when that was being done at that time. That Flexner Report also understand it's not just about black folks because it also prescribes the closing of all the medical schools affiliated with women's colleges. Yikes! That's where we were. But so we know that those seven medical schools or more, right, medical schools, the missing doctors of the graduates of the medical school, they were not going to invest to develop the medical school. Well, they would develop, invest to develop. Well, the country was ready to invest in other medical schools, which the Flexner Report needs, said needed shoring up to catch up to the new standards that change medical education throughout the country, including Harvard. So they closed those medical So that gap is there. So really, in, a, in beginning a new medical school, it's important to actually help satisfy that gap. And what we what kept us from uh, making the step that we that we announced last last fall was the pandemic. But also, it was important to us six years ago, as we talked about this on our board of trustees, to have find the right a partner that we could actually work with to develop. Because one of the key uh, one of the key goals was was actually a partner who actually can give us the clinical sites and participate in the education of our medical students with us. Uh, for the future, and that thing we have that in Oxnard, and so that work is being done. And we have many planning meetings that are done, that occur at least uh, every other week, where we're meeting in our governance team and, and also the consultants that we brought into place, and we'll be raising the funds as well. And uh, I'm sure it will be something that many people can be proud of. And I think the partners that run the country who have who will join us in that effort will be very proud of the result. Wow, that's that's amazing! Congratulations. Uh, what a what a great initiative. You know what's fascinating about the conversation you guys have just had and we're having is we're talking about people. We're talking about relationships and partnerships and students and career services and jobs and and we're living in this world where all the technology around us is taking away or implies that we're not going to need people as much as we needed them before. We're gonna AI I read an article today that says the AI university is on its way. Everything is going to be completely automated. You won't even need faculty anymore. It's going to just be, you're just going to go in. It's going to be a machine. You're not going to ever see anyone. And you're going to pop out with a, a, with a degree on the other end. What's real and what's not? Are relationships still at the core of what we do? And are we really being threatened by technology in the way that the narrative says? The technology, we have to develop and, and, and fashion how, it's, how it serves us. Uh, the one word that comes back to me, and, and, and the, Greek, the Greek dramatists and also the Greek mythologians would have said, word hubris. There's a false pride in thinking that technology, AI, will actually replace us, uh, will raise our children, and all that. Uh, that will not happen. But what we have to actually think about exactly how we use it uh, and how we actually frame it. It will actually allow us to do other things that we can do. But we also have to approach it with some cautions because technology as we as we think about the whole concept of actually an ethics program at, at Xavier and other places is to think deeply about how we actually use technologies because technologies are benign or malign depending on how, on how we allow them. So it will be up to us as human beings and in relation with other human beings, which is that which is what we have to think about that because we're not doing it for if we think of it doing it for my individual benefit, I will take this in a certain direction. 
But if we think about it as doing it for ourselves in community with other human beings, right, we will come to a good result. Hmm. I'll tell you, and I, I've mentioned this before, but I went to, I went to ChatGPT, which is, of course, if you've heard of it before, mm -hmm. I entered in uh, old videos of Mordecai uh, Ian Brownlee. I entered in some of uh, his uh, papers, his dissertation, um, a couple of pictures, and, and then I said, make me a co-host episode. And I didn't even need to invite him. He is here as artificial intelligence. I know I understand. Right? AI Mordecai. AI Mordecai. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, I, it had just popped this out. And I was like, it's inserted him. Here he is. Don't believe it. Don't believe it, people. I'm here. It's the real yeah, He really is here. But I mean, you know, the, the, the implication in all of this is that is that students don't need formalized education anymore. And we brought this up a lot, not only for, not only AI, take the technology out. And I asked this a lot of presidents, uh, Reynolds, and I wanna go back to you because you were one of the first. When we spoke first, the first time two and a half years ago, the degree, the value of a degree was not in the same question. It was not being questioned to the level it's being now. Do you need a degree? Do you not? Do you? go for skill stacking, do you not? And then, you know, you you take our environment that we have of a multicultural majority, you have first-gen students who don't understand higher education the way that a, a parents would understand it of a, a, a child who's not first-gen, and you put all of this noise around them about whether a degree has value. And it would be very easy to convince somebody that doesn't know college or the path to college that well that they shouldn't go. And what does that do to us as a society, to, to um, you know, people from lower economic uh, means, where they can't, they don't end up generating wealth over time? There's just a lot of, there's a lot of downside to the narrative that a degree doesn't hold value. Do you agree? Do you disagree? What, what's your take on this conversation? And then Mordecai, you jump in when you want. Please, Mordecai, because I disagree because I think degree does have value. And the value has to be as the means, the value of the degree also has to come from the student himself. It's not something that basically, as any true great, great learning occurs, it does not come only from the exterior from the teacher. So the student needs to understand the same way the student will understand why I use an AI, why I do not use an AI, because of what it does for my learning and how I learn it can be useful. The other part I would say to question the value of the degree, there's a similarity that I would say even after the Civil War. The former slaves understood the value of education in a way that was profound and sought education and walked miles for education, while others would say they don't need it because we need them as workers. Understand that. There are those who have the luxury to question the value of that degree, but, the, but those who are becoming American, who are becoming uh, the center of, uh, of the American experience, because this is the country that we are becoming, understand why education matters. It is the one currency you can take with you. It is, it is one of the things that those fleeing persecution understood is one thing you take as you fly. Off for statements there, Mr. President. Let me ask you this. What conversations are you all having at Xavier within the academy about micro-credentials? So certainly there's the conversation about the impact of AI. And then there's this conversation about the future of higher education and who's going to be willing to attend these programs for as long as they have historically attended these programs in the past. You've made some powerful statements thus far. Would love to get your thoughts and just let us in, in, in the conversations that are happening at your university there in Louisiana about 
micro-credentials? And, and is there any thoughts about maybe an increase in micro-credentials in the medical health field or that there will be some sense of an evolution towards shorter-term credentials? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I think what is what is occurring is that the conversation about certain uh, knowledge skills and, 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 and subsets without, uh, uh, you call them my credentials, of not necessarily degree programs, of, of courses that allow us to extend our knowledge, for example. Think about psychologists we need to prescribe. We're not getting a degree, a non-degree in psychology, but need certain not level, certain levels of from, from, from pharmacy and pharmaceutical science in order to have to be certified to prescribe. They need that. Likewise, if you had, for example, someone who was essentially a forensics analyst, right, who need who needed the experience in, 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 in certain new analytical skills to be able to put that into his tools box in order to be more effective as a forensics analyst. Those things, those 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 courses should be open so that we can actually certify those that that knowledge set has has. We call them micro credentials because now we it it fits into a very nice box, but that is not very new. But how we actually document those will it need, needs to be important because it is about how we expand how we, how we expand our, our, our skill sets. I mean, so, when yeah. you say document them, could it be transcript them? I mean, do we transcript them differently? And, Transcript them, doc, exactly as a set that 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 certify that certain someone has a certain set of knowledge that that someone has has a set of knowledge. That is a, that will be important as well, but it will be as not as knowledge in isolation because clearly I think what is important in, uh, what what is the value of, of of what we call liberal education, which is an old term. I'm, I'm going back to the 60s, and even and, and even to the 20s. Uh, that knowledge that actually is allows students to actually uh, examine and, and, and think about things in depth, and, That's to, very good. and, and, and to examine and to examine complicated ideas, which then allows that person to be to go into a, a range of fields, is what occurs in, in advanced education. That doesn't go away, but actually that to that is what one can add micro credentials as well. But I do think there, there is an important force for that advanced education because it allows students access to, to things that uh, to be able to actually apply themselves in a range in a range of fields in fields that are do not even exist yet because we're trying to think of we're training students for today's professions but actually from some the freshmen who are entering my classes this fall right will then be departing for careers that do not yet exist today. Bullseye. So how do I give them the wherewithal the tools to be able to actually step into that world? It's about the habits of mind and that facility to be ready for those opportunities. For those that are listening, uh, curious, President Barrett, how, what advice you would have, those that are actually teaching, they're the ones in the classroom, they're watching this change, this disruption that's happening uh, pedagogically. What advice would you have for up and coming educators that are seeking to embrace AI, to embrace the changes in technology to embrace all of this disruption and see it as a positive. What advice do you have for me? Well, I think other other than listening to the Edup Experience podcast because that's table right. stakes. <laughs> other advice that is one, and I think that is important. It is important as well that they be able to edu be engaged in educating their students in how to use technologies that are emerging uh, to understand the limitations and the uh, and the. Uh, strength of those technologies and to also understand that and also to educate students in learning for their for its own benefits not only learning in order to be able to um, satisfy a credential in fact if you think about it the grade 
uh, the focus on GPA and grade uh, is one, because it's not an easy measurement, but it also discourages students from actually um, taking chances and learning things that may, with, with, which may not be their greatest strengths. If you think about the students who wants to, the 4.0 GPA, and I, I've met students who actually have dropped courses because it will, it will affect their 4.0 GPA. Well, I think we're gonna get maybe a B plus. Uh, and that taking of chances to learn things and take adventures and risk is something that actually we discourage our students because, so we need to encourage students to learn for them, to learn because this is the things that they wish to learn. I pick up- So true. And, that, and, that, and that, so we have to be careful that we don't um, discourage students. If they're learning only because satisfied grade, we actually do not, um, we're not, we're not, we're not stimulating their genius. So true, right? In the, in the end, when you're successful and you get onto the work world, nobody asks you what grade you got in this course. Um, only that you graduated with your credential and you're out working and you're successful, right? That, but at some point in that student's journey, somehow we've made that grade matter so much that it's protected. They want to protect it so highly because they feel it's going to affect their future. And, and, and I remember some uh, analysis, someone's looking at members of the Academy of Sciences, this was back in, this is quite a while ago, it's back in the 80s, and looking at SATs and GPAs. Uh, and where they were not, they were middling. <laughs> because they actually, they actually took chances that actually, when you took that graduate course as a junior in college, right? You were not going to be at the top of the class. But you took it. Yeah. And that's what made you who you are. And that, and so in some way, we are disincentivizing the risk taking, which is actually the part of learning. Which is, if you look at children, children learn to walk because they by falling on their faces and have no shame doing it. We've created an impediment to falling on your face and say, ah, this is not for me. Or yeah. I learned this, and now how's that going to fit into the other pieces that I do well? Wow. More, uh, Mordecai, you have any uh, final questions for uh, Reynolds as we close out this episode? Amazing episode. Yeah, great episode, sir. Just, just we, you know, Joe brought this up. You talked about your presidential tenure. Um, and as we just continue to think about the future landscape, lots is changing. Lots of conversations are happening around the academy nationally about sustainability, about this being our upcoming year, the first full year without HERF. Uh, higher education, uh, emergency relief funds, sustainability. Just would like to get your final thoughts on sustainability. Uh, your 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 advice for folks like myself. I'm, I'm I'm entering now into my third year of my college presidency. Just your thoughts and advice on how to have strong tenures, how to continue to be effective at serving our institutions, and uh, thinking about sustainability. Well, I uh, first on, on presidential tenure, I think it is important that uh, if we go back to 10 years that were on decade scale, about a decade, someone or more uh, many years ago, which has shortened significantly. It is important to actually accomplish the things that we need to have at college campuses. You need tenure that is long enough to actually, because the, the, the change, the orientations, you need also to build a team to attract people to come on the team, you need those. It's not just president, it's, it's bright people who come and commit themselves to work with that president and help build the institution. They need confidence that you will be here for them because you are, you are, they, are coming, they are coming to work with you. 
as president, whomever you are. So I think that longe that longevity, a certain longevity of service is important to actually bring the team that will actually build the institution and take the institution to its next episodes. That's important, that commitment, and that's something that uh, trustees, regents need to think about. In, in, this is not about building, uh, changing coaches in the middle of a season as we do in our athletics team. And I think maybe the model may be wrong. So I think uh, not settling and hiring the right person is important. So I think no, there's not a rush. You don't want to settle, you want to get the right person. Mm -hmm. But when you do that, commitment to that person I think it, it, it is important. You know, if, 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 you, if you want to actually, if you're looking at the long distance, that's true for all of our institutions. The other piece of that, I think the sustainability piece is that uh, there's an affordability model which is important, there's, an important there, there's a need to invest in our institutions, but there's also a need to understand that uh, America is going into a period uh, as it has before of being, uh, competing on the, world, uh, on, the, on, the world, on the world stage. We need to be able to educate our students at the highest level in order to compete because if we are looking at this country that we are competing with supposedly economically, but also another, another phase on some very scary phases as well, monetarily as well. We need the genius of us, of our, of our young people, because they are educating their young people to the highest level. And That's the cannot, truth. We cannot go into uh, the Olympics games picking players for our teams from twenty percent of our population, while the other guy is playing with is looking for the best players from throughout their populations. So, if you want to remain a leader among nations, educate. And I come in, and this is this this is it's clear to me that. Uh, we have gold in this country, but not in Fort Knox. The gold we have is in the second and third grade right now. And we waste it at our peril. <laughs> and uh, the last thing I want to say that education in higher ed is important, but also understand that if we don't do educational equity at K through 12, educate all of our children, we do it at our risk. And it will make higher ed prosper as well. Well stated. Well stated. I've enjoyed this. This has been helpful for me. If it had been helpful for anybody else, thank you, Joe, for the opportunity. President Verrett, thank you for all that you're doing. We, we like to ask two final questions uh, to end every episode. Uh, Reynolds, here you go. Well, first of all, the first one's not a question. I got to change up my whole thing. You know, I'm, it's, I keep messing it up. But what do you want to say about Xavier University, Louisiana? Anything else you want to bring up or say that you didn't get a chance? And then two, to end us off, what do you see for the future of higher education? I think the secret element at Xavier the important element of Xavier education that students leave with is that they understand that the value of what they've learned here would only come to pass when they put it in service of other people, whether it's doctors, <laughs> lawyers, teachers. That commitment to service, which they learn here to each other, is what they take with them. And I've seen that among our alumni. We continue that among the students who come here. That is what they take with us. If that's the gift we are called to give to the country. That's I love that. I love that you've got your value proposition so passionately crystallized. That that means a lot. What what do you see for the future of higher ed? I think higher ed will actually come to understand will understand that its purpose is to serve others and actually educate students for others. And so higher ed will continue serving the country because we'll educate people. And uh, that experiment that began with the GI Bill is now needs to be expanded because we need the genius of all of all our students. That's that is well stated. Wow, you guys, you know, I, I gotta appreciate this. I'll, I'll tell you what, one of the things that when Elvin and I started the EdUp experience, we said we're not 
interviewing enough people in higher ed at scale to make a difference in what's being said against higher education. You know, how do we take the voices internally and say, this is what's going on. This is a level of passion. This is where the expertise is. So we're hoping we're bringing you that first with our amazing guest co-host today. Here he is. He's Dr. Mordecai Ian Brownlee. He is the president of the Community College of Aurora. Mordecai, how'd you like your first uh, co guest co-hosting gig over here? Hey, man, you know, this was fun. I, I uh, didn't know what to expect, but uh, now I want more. I want more, man. Well, you know what? What You can come <laughs> back. You know, you got the schedule. You can come back in the time. <laughs> this is great. This is great. Thank you again. And Joe, thank you. I don't think we as an industry get a chance to thank the work that you and your team are doing enough. So thank you so much for the platform that you've created for all of us to learn, grow, network, and evolve together. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, that. It, it, I, I, can't, I can't say more about that. It is great work to do. That messaging about the value of what we do, the world needs to know because the world needs higher ed. You got it. Well, nobody's going to say it better than my guest today. No, he's your guest, ladies and gentlemen. Here he is, Dr. Reynolds Barrett. He is president at Xavier University of Louisiana, and he is one amazing leader in higher education. Reynolds, we hope you had a good time for your second time on the Edup Experience podcast. I enjoyed it. It's, good. it's a great way to go into the weekend. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, guess what you've done? You've just edupped. It's time to level up. The beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you. Order your copy of Commencement. The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education by Kate Colbert, Dr. Joseph Lucille, with contributions by Elvin Freitas. It's Higher Education's must-read book of 2022. Discover how you can seize the moment to change higher education forever. Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, now available on Amazon. For bulk orders, contact Kate, Joe, or Elvin.